What is up, everybody? Welcome back to Black Hoodie Alchemy. I'm Anthony Tyler, and been feeling a little under the weather this week. So I thought, um, it just seems like the perfect opportunity to uh, go into the next chapter that I teased for you in the last episode. Last episode, I read uh, mostly an entire chapter from my book, chapter six, um, from Hunt Manual, 21st Century Demonology and Fortiana. Uh, And that was about serial killers and occultism. Uh, and, and you know demonology essentially from the Jungian perspective so looking at this stuff giving the mysticism its merit from an archetypal psychoanalytic perspective but as you do that you see that psychoanalysis provides a a very useful and uh, recommendable framework but it doesn't answer all the questions and um but it you know and if it, it it does help um elaborate some of the strange mindsets of people like serial killers and we talked a little bit about cult leaders as well and so this episode i'm going to read chapter 7 and it's going to be about mostly cult leaders and a little bit of serial killers and you know before i get into it um uh, you know don't forget divemind.net you can go purchase either one of the books. Um, the last episode, you can find that excerpt posted on my website, divemind.net. This one, however, you cannot. So you can either listen to it here or you can go get the book, Hunt Manual. And of course, you know, don't forget to rate the podcast. Appreciate you listening wherever the world you're tuning in from. Okay, let's get into this. And we'll probably have a little bit of time at the end of the episode here, so we'll get into some analysis or some extra shit. We'll see. I started this chapter with a quote from Richard the Iceman Kuklinski. And no, not a cult leader, but you'll see there's good reason that he's in this chapter. Interesting, ominous food for thought. Quote, by now, you know what I liked most was the hunt the challenge of what the thing was. The killing for me was secondary. I got no rise as such out of it, for the most part. But the figuring it out, the challenge, the stalking and doing it right, successfully, that excited me a lot. The greater the odds against me, the more juice I got out of it. And here is the chapter. In terms of cult leaders, my friend, they certainly fit in line with our hijack of the mirror neurons through a cluster of the nervous system amounting, in certain cases, of devilish obsession. The truly most horrific demonic facets just lie in the macabre details of the cult activity, uh, such as with the case of Adolfo Constanzo, leader of what the media called the narco-Satanists. Uh, When they were exposed at the end of the 1980s, Constanzo was a cult leader mixed with a serial killer, mixed with a small-time cartel drug lord, uh, and he had a tight-knit posse of people surrounding him that were the same, including a woman that he dubbed his priestess. And with the group practicing a bastardized villainous and with the group practicing a bastardized villainous version of Caribbean folk magic called Palo Mayombe, this story truly seems stranger and more terrifying than fiction. On a path of murderous black magic, human sacrifice, and even the slaughter of a certain low-level cartel family, Constanzo had built a small but impressive claim in Matamoros, Mexico. His magic consisted of, at its core, letting a bunch of organic matter rot in a cauldron that was serving as a tether to what they believed to be a primordial spirit. Traditional practitioners of this folk magic say that, while animal sacrifice has, has historically been common, Human sacrifice is always considered taboo and downright evil, but similar to a genie in a bottle, the decomposition of this organic matter is said by those traditional practitioners to conjure spirits that are meant to act as benevolent guides. Constanzo took this idea and decided to begin feeding the supposed entity human brains, among other things. And again, by feeding it, I mean letting the brain sit in the cauldron. After many ritual killings and a spree of crime that would make most fictional supervillains shiver, he abducted a young American college student named Mark Kilroy, who was in Mexico to enjoy his 1989 spring break only to be abducted and ritually sacrificed. 
The cult leader was also known to take great pleasure in the ceremony of the fear, sharpening his machete blades in front of his victims, among other terrifying things. It is no wonder that a case like this, getting mass media attention, would help stir up a satanic panic. It's just a shame that this panic has reached the hysterical heights that it continues to reach even still. In the end, it's anybody's guess as to whether these narco-Satanists were in the communication were in communication with some sort of dark entity. But if you ask me, it's certainly not out of the realm of possibility, given everything we've gone over so far. Constanzo and his narco-Satanists are by far the most overtly terrifying group like this that record has to show. But when we look at so many of the most infamous names we've come to know, they were all either beaten and battered by life, or in the case of Constanzo, they felt completely entitled to fulfill their worst intentions. Jim Jones is another prime example of this same entitlement, along with Keith Raniere of the Nexium cult, and David Berg of the Children of God, and of course, L. Ron Hubbard, who I'd be talking about a bit more with you if he wasn't covered endlessly elsewhere. Quite the morbidly fascinating person, Hubbard. They all are, really. And let us not forget that Hubbard was close to Jack Parsons for a long time when he was younger. And Parsons is none other than the founder of Jet Propulsion's laboratory, which eventually snowballed into NASA. Parsons was also an avid follower of Aleister Crowley and was even in touch with the Great Beast through letters. Additionally, while I wouldn't be quick to call Crowley an outright cult leader, and I don't demonize the practice of Thelema, Crowley certainly plays its role in the background of this discussion. These cult leaders show the absolute depths of the entitled human being, the one whose self-righteousness has become their demon. All of these men in particular seem to be fascinated with the Gnostic idea of the Demiurge, whether they realized it or not. They were certainly not the only cult leaders to think this way either. Cult leaders like these men saw the Christian Yahweh as not only something deeply integrated into the culture already, but also something easily usurped when given enough time. Hubbard less directly so than the others here, but still not excluded entirely. First, it starts as these people having God's ear. Then they become the mouthpiece of God, and eventually they just become the living embodiment of God. More often than not, their very doctrines will echo these updates over time, but even if they don't, we can still see the transformation present in their character. After all, once you become God, you control the thresholds of ethics and morality, and you can sway them however you like. It's truly convenient, if nothing else. The cult known as the Order of the Solar Temple, led by Joseph de Mambra and Luc Jarret, founded in Geneva in 1984, is a lesser-known but astonishingly clear-cut example of this. De Mambra was a self-stylized New Age mystic, and Jarret was a homeopathic doctor with a penchant for New Age spirituality and esotericism as well. Together, Jarret as the smooth talker and de Mambra as the quote-unquote world builder of their cult mythology, they wove a web of magic and lineage that incorporated the lore of the Knights Templar with Freemasonry, Rosicrucianism, the esoteric mystery rites of antiquity, the processions of the equinoxes, pre- and afterlife soul journeys, ceremonial magic, and much, much more. They knew what some of the foremost philosophers and anthropologists were saying about the imaginal implications and capabilities unlocked through the mystical states of consciousness in archaic rituals and ceremonies. They knew that there was an evolutionary crawl of the human condition typified through archetypes and memes in certain ways, and they spun it into a mad fever dream where they were sleeping with any cult member they wanted, doing anything they wanted when they wanted, um, eventually even to include the murder of a child they thought to be the actual Antichrist. Well, if Jure and um, Damambra didn't believe it, they certainly got their members to, and it brought the whole operation crashing down around them after building up quite the empire of filth and degradation, something reminiscent of Crowley's Abbey of Thelema, but debatably much worse. And 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 that group eventually ended in mass suicide as well. But not every cult leader uses this capacity of the archetypal demiurge for their pursuits of limitless hedonism. Like in the case of Marshall Applewhite and the Heaven's Gate UFO cult that was sent to the stars with matching Nikes, he truly just didn't want to be alone. 
Applewhite, despite all his manipulation and classical cult leader tactics, truly never wanted anything more than people surrounding him and looking up to him. Uh, instead of trying anything genuinely altruistic, he just seemed to fit into the whole cult motif quite well with his partner Bonnie, who died years before the group's suicide, which seemed to tip him over the edge into the doomsday prophet mode. And for all their complexity, cults usually will predictably fall into one or more of the following focuses. The Abrahamic Demiurge, the Satanic Hedonist, the New Age Guru, or the UFO Communicator. At least in the West. The greatest reason I bring this all up to you is because of your position in the hunt. All of these people, archetypally or literally, were hunted by something, whether they be possessed, oppressed, or obsessed. And their preconditions to the situation largely, but not entirely, dictated what kind of archetypally devilish contact it would be for them. The only kind of devilish contact you should be prepared for is that which you intend to vanquish. Don't go chasing dragons unless you intend to slay them, my friend. And really, don't go chasing dragons at all. Stay vigilant and be prepared for when they might come to you, because they might indeed come to you. But if you're prepared, and if you take up the position of the predator instead of the prey, they will think twice about even crossing you to begin with. And if they do cross you, they will know you to be a formidable foe. These things feed on your fear, so do not be afraid. In the face of true evil, be courageous. Swing your blade with all your might and do not hesitate. But make sure to be clear on what you are even vanquishing and where you are swinging that blade. As Christ himself said, we must take the plank out of our own eyes before judging others. This does not mean that we should not judge others, but that we should surely judge ourselves first. Put the blade to your demons first. This hunt is an inward experience, never outward. Unless you're hunting for food, but fishing game is a different conversation, don't you think? You'll come to find that even my hunt of these monsters out here is a bit more traditional and falls in line with the natural law of things around here. You see, aside from your ritualized hunt for survival, like feeding your family, there is no hunt from the outside. These things are vengeful vendettas that lead to obsession, a path of self-righteousness that opens the gateways to truer realms of demonology. Confrontation of the truest physical nature should not involve the premeditation of a hunt. It should be defensive. Haven't you heard any philosophy surrounding martial arts? It's all there, my friend. I'm not saying anything new here. As the legendary Sun Tzu once said in his great work, The Art of War, if you know the enemy and you know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. If you know yourself but not the enemy, for every victory gained, you will also suffer a defeat. If you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. Surely, while war is on a larger scale with more philosophical implications, this quote can especially be taken into consideration with personal confrontation. We must come to understand our shadow so that we may eradicate what is devilish and seeking to tear us apart through our pent-up neuroses, tensions, and proverbial psychic phantom limbs. But we, but we must also come to understand the shadow so that we may rescue the wounded aspects of ourselves lying malnourished out of our direct line of sight. These things too hide within the shadow, and in great acts of misguided self-righteousness, these malnourished aspects of ourselves are usually the things eradicated not the devils. And likewise, when we succumb to the depths of self-loathing and self-nihilism, it is the devil winning out and not the malnourished aspects of ourselves that we sought to feed in the first place through our impulsivity. And, you know, I think it's clear enough, but hey, just to reiterate, if anyone's a new listener, I'm not talking about a hellfire and brimstone Christian devil. Um, it's esoteric, these archetypally speaking. <laughs> you're just going to have to uh, uh, do some, check out some of the legwork in the past episodes there. Infamous mafia hitman Richard Kuklinski, uh, known as the Iceman to the media, was known to kill over 100 people, perhaps more, perhaps less, but I wouldn't be surprised by 100. 
how many people Kuklinski killed is one of the top most contended pieces of modern true crime history, and I'm not trying to go down this rabbit hole. But suffice it to say that the hitman liked to tell a mix of unverifiable tall tales and documented accounts of his crimes. He got his name from freezing bodies to offset their decomposition, but he didn't do that quite as much as the name suggests. Kuklinski is someone you could call a serial killer, technically speaking, but he had a vague code of ethics that he tried to follow. He had a wife and family, and although he beat his wife and psychologically terrified his children, he never killed any women or children. And it would be great to say he only killed criminals, but that's not so much the case either. Uh, we can only say that he mostly killed other criminals, but he was really hired to kill whoever his mafia contractor wanted him to. And sometimes he killed people on his own time for things as simple as cutting them off in traffic. The Iceman, being Polish, was able to work as a contract killer for all of the Italian crime families of New York City at the height of their power, and the Iceman was known particularly for running around in Gambino circles, particularly with contract killer Roy DeMeo, who was known to run a crew of killers for the Gambino family that eventually became infamous for their quote-unquote Gemini method of body disposal. Yes, as promised, the curious Gemini symbolism makes one last appearance. You see, uh, DeMeo and his crew had a small bar, and connected to that bar was a small apartment dwelling they dubbed the Gemini Lounge, where bodies of victims were known to be bled out in bathtubs, butchered, and dispersed throughout New York dumpsters, lakes, and rivers. The crew was very efficient, very ruthless, and somewhat in the vein of Costanzo's narco-Satanists. Although it would be incorrect to call DeMeo's crew a group of satanic occultists, especially since the Gemini reference uh, was a dark joke to them. Uh, the archetypal similarities to DeMeo's crew and these other cults are noticeable and honestly just another curious side story in the scope of Kuklinski's history. Particularly, the Iceman's origin story epitomizes this entire aspect of the human condition that I've tried to bring to your attention at present. As a young teenager growing up in early 20th century New York City, Kuklinski was beaten relentlessly by his father and by a litany of bullies around him that smelled his fear. He was tormented to the point of developing or exacerbating a severe case of antisocial personality disorder and even forms of disassociative disorder. Coming to terms with all this violent abuse at a young age, Richard told stories from prison about how he would... Uh, throw stray cats down into the incinerator of his apartment building just to watch them burn. But unlike all these other killers, Richard was disturbed by it. Mind you, he wasn't disturbed by the cat's suffering, but he was so uh, at the fact that he felt nothing from it. This would be a recurring theme throughout Richard's life, something that propelled him to commit more acts of violence. Kuklinski tells tales of doing something similar later in his life, but instead of cats, he fed his victims alive to a swarm of cave rats and filmed it so that he might elicit some sort of reaction out of himself when watching the tapes. While some might quickly write this off as a tall tale, it's very possible that the hitman did at least once or twice. He said it unnerved him a little bit, but it didn't give him the typical human reaction. While it's highly likely that Kuklinski embellished his procedure with the rats and how many times he used them, history shows us that rats can and will eat corpses when they have an opportunity, and rats were even known to eat the barely living as they laid on the battlefields of World War II. While Kuklinski could have made all this up, I am more inclined to believe that he made most of it up. You should follow your gut with information like this, but I wouldn't put it past this hitman to have fed a couple of people to rats nor would I put it past him to have filmed it once. Instead of satisfying a lustful need like the others here, he was a sadistic Frankenstein's monster walking around trying to prove to himself that he had some sort of humanity that he could violate. Or perhaps a, an even sicker Pinocchio trying to be a real boy. Through the violation of his humanity, he could finally prove its existence. In some ways, he was trying to find a line that he could cross to jolt some empathy back into himself for the most part now i'm certainly not trying to justify the actions of kuklinski or make the case that he was a good person 
but his code of ethics was more staunch and natural than any other person in this conversation by a wide margin, and he had a certain amount of self-awareness that is relatable. But in line with this fine line of the hunt, one day after Kuklinski had recently hit a hefty growth spurt, he decided to meet a pack of bullies coming to heckle him outside. With a deep and vicious resolve, the young Kuklinski single-handedly beat them without mercy and sent them all running, and from that point on, Richard knew that he was going to make it the biggest point of his life to be the predator and not the prey. He had the right idea, but in the completely wrong direction. And this sentiment is echoed time and time again throughout these stories of killers and cult leaders. The infamous hobo serial killer Carl Panzram has a similar origin story with very explicit statements about choosing forevermore to be the predator instead of the prey. And again, what I mean by the right idea in the completely wrong direction is you should have this sort of self-destructive mentality about yourself. Asterisks, asterisks, you know, in a, in a concentrated uh, therapeutic way, you know, we should be ready to dismantle the things about ourselves um, when we're in the right, when we're doing that, that therapeutic process, not, not so much, you know, it's good to be humble, but I'm not saying that every day we go through these elaborate and like ego shattering psychological processes. But, you know, when those things come, we should take them um, and allow the process to break something, to to sort of see what's underneath and, and make new, because sometimes that's just what needs to be done. Anyway, these guys are doing the opposite. They're They're breaking the outside, right? And also, just a brief aside here, I felt like I it was unnecessary to put into the book, but it's just Kuklinski is just such a strange character. For anyone that doesn't know, he uh, he also had a friend that uh, was an ice cream man who was a former contract killer. Um, I believe he might have been military at one point, and his name, I want to say, was Mr. Frosty. But you can look this up, and uh, it's it's one of those things where, speaking of like the mixture of tall tale and verifiable facts in Kuklinski's story, uh, we can see that this guy was a real person and was did have a military background and had homicidal tendencies. But how much of this did Kuklinski embellish? We don't know. Uh, this guy ended up dying, you know, before. He, he was ever arrested or anything like that but but this guy was an ice cream truck driver that uh taught kuklinski about cyanide um and this guy was just obsessed with um killing people without them knowing it and i believe sometimes he would even um occasionally just kill people for fun you know just putting it in ice cream and whatnot um because it, it, it unless you're testing for cyanide you you'll never notice it when you're doing uh, any sort of autopsy or forensic analysis, especially back then. They just it wasn't on people's radars like it was now. And so Kuklinski was literally friends with a homicidal ice cream truck driver hitman who taught him about the chemistry of cyanide and the administration of it. And um, I. He also reportedly uh, went and showed the ice cream driver um, the cave where he liked to feed people to cave rats. What a life. But in, and but then Kuklinski also has a story of going full-blown Frank Castle Punisher style and doing some sort of mafia-related deal, you know, just contractually speaking, just one of the lower men doing the things. Um, and you go into this house for the the situation. I think it might have been the porn that he was selling, something like that. And the story goes that he went to this house to do a transaction and there were children, there were basically child slaves there waiting to be trafficked. And he didn't do anything the first time, but contractually he had to go back a second time. And what he did that time was gun everyone down in there and free all the children. I guess there's like a very vague, vague possibility that somehow that happened, but you'd think that there would be some sort of paper trail 
And there's absolutely nothing to speak of. And Kuklinski is a, an infamous legend of true crime. So people, this is one of the cases, the stories, biographies that people have combed through the most. So it's highly doubtful that anything like that happened. And there's plenty of examples. Um, but then, you know, there's another case of, like I mentioned, traffic anger. Kuklinski, after some dude cut him off, he made it side by side with the dude um, I believe they stopped for a moment and he blew the guy's head off with a shotgun. And, and and that actually happened. They found documentation of that one, but he never got caught for it. Not until, you know, being in uh, prison and deciding to talk about these things. Crazy. Kuklinski was a, I don't even, a true rare beast. Just unbelievable. And not in the good ways. I'm reminded of the ancient Buddhist story of Angulimala, the serial killer that became a Buddha. This story is not a glorification of the killer, but speaks to something similar to Faust's ultimate and righteous epiphany of error, dying of a heart attack because of it, truly saving his soul and taking his life at the same time. Uh, but before that, you know what time it is. Let's go ahead and dive into that commercial break. We'll be right back uh, to talk more about this ancient Buddhist mythology of serial killers and some more cult leaders in just a moment. Stick with us. Natural Born Alchemist podcast is a podcast that covers topics like alchemy, shamanism, psychedelics, anarchism and philosophy. Join Alex, that's me, and a multitude of guests on a quest to discover the nature of reality, of spirit and of consciousness. Each episode will also introduce you to new music that you might never have heard before. You can find the podcast on most platforms. Simply search for Natural Born Alchemist or go directly to naturalbornalchemist.com. There you'll be able to find all the social media links as well. Freedom is in the mind. Musicians experience a lot of frustration with music marketing and promotion. They have no idea how to get their music heard. And they're spending hours sending emails, making phone calls, and hitting up their friends to promote them. With our industry-powered digital marketing platform, we can set up your media plan in minutes. Our team will automatically distribute your music across all the best channels, so you can focus on actually making the music. Submit your music today on our website at mymusicpromoter.com. That's mymusicpromoter.com. Listen. As we explore the mysteries of the universe, the unknown, high strangeness, consciousness, and our human potential, 
Lighting the Void is an eclectic program that strives to ignite the late night with stimulating conversations. Join us on The Fringe FM. Thousands of people are having paranormal experiences with ghosts, demons, shadow people, dogmen, Bigfoot, and more. Their stories need to be told, and they are being told. Dark Waters, the renowned storyteller, invites you to join at imdarkwaters.com. For just a few dollars a month, you can listen to some of the most hair-raising and compelling stories on the planet. You'll have access to real-life stories told by Dark Waters, thousands of hours of content. Their encounters are being told and told by the best at imdarkwaters.com. Listen to stories like The Rabbit Man, The Dogman Encounter in Silas, Alabama, The Man with No Face, The Other Woman, A Day Ahead of the Devil, Dogman Murder in Hurricane Ida, even a story of someone trying to kill a dogman. Louisiana Water Demon Stories. Sign up today and become a member at imdarkwaters.com. That's imdarkwaters.com. from my book chapter 7 about cult leaders and a little bit of serial killers and occultism from the Jungian perspective to analyzing this from a psychoanalytic perspective that leaves room for the more unexplainable aspects but not from a particularly religious standpoint and this is going uh, directly off of last episode Let's keep talking about it. We were just about to get into the Buddhist story of Angulimala, which is actually an ancient serial killer. And um, as to whether or not this story actually happened, you know, it's up for debate. Probably not if we're just going with the rule of thumb of mythology, but that this is that this is actually an ancient story is very much the case and pretty fascinating that the archetype of the serial killer goes back and our true crime obsession even goes back far further than we could really imagine just takes different forms okay so in gulimala um 
Mangulimala was a reasonable enough child, although he was said to be the proverbial teacher's pet, and he was born under um, what was said to be a criminal's moon. Um, and so his parents tried to constantly avoid that with a sort of generally conservative, sheltered mentality. Interesting that that expresses itself as a teacher's pet even thousands of years ago. Humans are, you know, still doing the same things. Uh, but as he grew older, he found himself in more studious academics and spiritual disciplines. Uh, but he was still the same teacher's pet, and this naturally garnered distaste in the mouths of his classmates. So after a rumor spreading to a particular teacher, Angulimala's teacher gave him a hopeless and senseless mission to simply get rid of him. Uh, the teacher told the pupil to go out and take a thousand fingers from a thousand humans, um, and only until he completed that would he be able to understand the true secrets of wisdom of life. Angulimala questioned him, but when the teacher in turn questioned the pupil's allegiance, the people said no more. Instead of seeking to collect fingers from corpses or perhaps even cutting fingers from bound victims, Ngulimala went on a warpath, murdering innocent villagers to collect his trophies. He used a variety of tactics, sometimes like guerrilla warfare hiding in the forest, other times simply walking into villages and picking people off out in the open. It caused cultural waves and word gathered throughout villages and spread to officials, and yet the serial killer persisted. And he wore all these uh, people's fingers on his neck as a necklace. And Angulimala actually stands for finger necklace. Through a series of events, both the Gautama Buddha and Angulimala's mother simultaneously attempted to find him so that they might talk some sense into the man. But in true poetic fashion, it would just so happen that the killer only needed one finger left to complete his dark side quest. But the Buddha showed the man through a Socratic dialogue, just how helpless and senseless he really was. And he showed Angulimala that the only thing he was good for was destroying things, not creating or loving. And, as I already mentioned, in a radical act of mystical self-transformation that can only come from the deepest, most clearly understood realizations of grace, humility, and suffering, Angulimala was sainted there on the spot, remaining a Buddha held in high regard in the mythology today and i believe he's actually a patron saint of uh pregnancy and like child bearing through their epiphanies uh both angulimala and faust finally committed their seppuku and salvaged what modicum of dignity they had left to turn them into something truly fantastic gautama buddha taught the fool the true ways of the hunt and the fool was lucky enough to listen I don't think this should necessarily be applied literally to the tales of these modern killers, for there seems to be really no path of rehabilitation for a person like this in my eyes. But that doesn't mean it is impossible in theory. It is most assuredly like that saying, there but for the grace of God go I. Well, there but for the flap of a butterfly's wing we go. And that is the end of the excerpt. And, you know, for... Recent examples, cases in point, just look at either Teal Swan or Lori Vallow. And the, that whole Netflix documentary about Lori Vallow was pretty wild. I mean, I had heard that story beforehand, but honestly, I did not know the details. And then everyone started telling me to watch it. And, you know, a lot of times I pass on that anyway. But the way people were putting this, like, I didn't realize that Lori Vallow's story had this whole occult angle to it. You know, not not to this level. I knew it, it. And for those that don't know, it started in podcasts um, and like offshoots of like Mormonism that were really new agey and almost like Scientology. And this woman um, started becoming more embedded and even had, uh, started cheating on her husband with uh, this the, this guy. What was his name? Chad Daybell was his name. And they got more into this, basically developing this model of like a suppressive person in Scientology. Um, 
and ranking people on their spiritual levels of ascension and enlightenment and getting to the point where this guy was just telling people, you know, as one does in these outrageous scenarios, you just start using the suppressive person to ostracize people from their friends and family and even, I guess, start killing people. Just somehow, it more often than not, it seems to spiral into that. And this woman, for her, for the sake of her family, quote unquote, you know, not a literal quote, but that was her mentality, um, ended up um, definitely abducting her children, but then, and then also burying them on her grounds. But there's heavy implications um, that there was some sort of sacrificial element to this. I mean, at least on a psychological level, it was definitely a clear, it was like an, you know, like Abraham almost sacrificing his son to God type thing, except really going through with it. So highly disturbing. And then she, you know, went on for like months before they had enough to actually arrest her. Uh, just saying that, you know, she wasn't worried about it. Her children were fine. Everyone was persecuting her. Um, and then, you know, it, lo and behold, it all unfolds as such. And she was running this podcast was just super, you know, just fits right into the Barnes and Noble New Age book section. Um, and just, you know, very teal swanish with a Mormon twist. Throw a little bit of like David Wilcock, cheesy chiclet smile vibes and you know you got the whole thing um and these things that you know when i listen to them they come across as just like a joke i just want to you know just grab some popcorn sometimes and listen to these kinds of shows because there's no there are no control methods there's no skeptical intellectual thought it's just sort of you know that's the thing with new age there's there are no control methods it's just you know whatever the fuck we want to talk about really and comparing whatever we really want to compare you know the, the, the same way cult leaders just make things out of thin air as long as you can wrap a bow around someone's thought process doesn't really matter what was contained in that bow you know just a little psychological inception there but anyway uh these people they may seem smiley and cheery and even like ignorantly dumb in some cases, but nefarious undertones. That woman was all new age, Mormon spirituality, positive vibes, you know, don't suppress me. I don't want to be around negative people, you know, suppressing my enlightenment. And she went and abducted and murdered and buried her children in her backyard and then lied about it to everyone like a true psychopath for months and still won't even admit to it because she knows in her mind, obviously not real. She thinks I'll, I'll phrase it like that, that, uh, you know, she did the right thing because her children were living in a damaged, broken world surrounded by devilish people. And that was her only way to save them. And then Teal Swan, you can go listen to the podcast I did with my friend Justin Otto about that one. And then there's the whole Hulu documentary series, The Deep End. And again, similar story, except I knew a little more about Teal Swan, but that documentary was extremely eye-opening. And someone who was literally in the uh, you know New Age Barnes & Noble book sections, and someone that is very damaging. You know, if you go and see one of her Tony Robbins style lectures it, as a public member, the worst that you might happen is you might have some half, you might absorb some half baked ideas um, and you might get robbed of some money. Or, or, you know, really worst case scenario, and that's one of the scary things about her is she might convince you that suicide is just the best option for you. So, you know, hit the reset button and start over. Um, so, that's pretty scary in and of itself. But when you go into her inner circle, that's where the real cult mentality is undeniable. And it's strange that they let that documentary crew come in as a way to vet themselves and say, hey, we're not a cult. And they ended up giving the documentary crew unfettered and unprecedented footage 
into like the inner workings of a cult at play and really shot themselves in the foot. I actually haven't looked into Teal Swan in a minute. I'd be interested to see how she recovered from all that. Cause I know there's was a lot of turmoil surrounding her public image, but you know, um, legends, whether they be famous or infamous, rarely ever die. And if they do, it certainly takes a while. So Teal Swan has got a lot left to um, throw at the common public. So keep your eyes peeled for that. Lori Vallow, um, definitely in custody. But at the moment of recording this, uh, they're still waiting to have a final verdict. It's still in process and things were postponed because of COVID, I believe, because this is many years in the making. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with that and some of the further details that unfold in that case. Hopefully she gets what she deserves, but I'm pretty sure she will. So I don't think we'll have to worry about that. But, you know, I guess that's some final food for thought. How people, especially smart people, get involved in these kinds of things and fall down these rabbit holes of cult mentality. You know, it's not an easy explanation, but there are things that we can take away from analysis of these situations. And, you know, it has to do with extremism. That's what it always boils down to. It's a, it's a, it's a reverence for the avoidance mentality and the victim mindset and the honing in on the perspective of being, you know, the chosen few or having the secrets. You know, we all, <laughs> everyone wants to feel like they have some sort of secret. You know, in your, in, we, that's kind of the mystical experience, right? That's like seeing the burning bush. Like everyone's going to have an experience that you can scarcely communicate to others. You know, it might not be that mystical, but we all have moments like that in our lives. And that's okay. That's okay. You know, which is just, we don't have to be constantly understood and people, and, and we're not going to be understood sometimes. And that's just part of it. And I don't know, in the same sense that existential horror gives me some sort of comfort, like it's a freedom. If we really are just in a ecosystem of in the vast cosmos, you know, an ant in the grand scheme of things, then let's just, you know, live our lives, you know, what's the big deal at that point? Doesn't have to be horrifying. And if people don't get everything that I'm talking about, that's okay too. They don't get every aspect of my personality. That's fine. And I, I guess other people just don't look at the world that way. They need to be understood. And I think perhaps that need to be understood is some sort of substitute for genuine therapy and catharsis. Because sometimes being understood can be that catharsis, but look, case in point, a lot of other times it's just an overt manipulation. People are just, just wounded people just wandering around trying to be healed. And, uh, you know, when people give up on healing themselves, they just look to the person that seems the most convincing. And then they just stumble from person to person until they either, I don't know, I guess, give up or find a person that, you know, kills them with their cult mentality. But it's broken people for sure. It doesn't have to do with intellectual lapses, although sometimes that's the case. And sometimes people are mentally ill, but it's something deeper. It's something very human. That much is certain. But, you know, with that, I think I'll sign out for now. Like I said on the last episode, I got some more guests lined up. We'll be talking about some heavy esoteric shit more soon. I hope you enjoyed this excerpt um, of Hunt Manual, 21st Century Demonology and Fortiana. You can go to divemind.net and check out all the action I got there. Don't forget to tune in next week. Don't forget that you're listening to Black Hoodie Alchemy. Um, I think that's pretty much it, you know. Um, rate the show and 
Y'all enjoy your week. Hope to see you around next time. Take care.